we, uh, we finished up last week uh, talking about context and the importance of context, and we saw the little example from the Australians um, who were, uh, remember, he looked, in his, he looked in his Bible and plopped his finger down on a verse, um, which was from uh, Hosea, and it was, uh, it said, go and take, uh, take on yourself a wife who is a prostitute. Um, so we, uh, a good example of why it is important to understand the context of something. Obviously, that wasn't God's command to every man. Um, so what was going on there is the big question. So I want to spend a little more time talking about the importance of context, the importance of um, reading uh, specific texts in the, the overall context of paragraphs, of chapters, of books, and ultimately of the whole bi- uh, biblical story together. So let's, uh, let's begin in John chapter 1. You need another one? There you go. And for those who weren't here last week, we're still on rule number one. The Bible's to be read like any other book. So how often, uh, if you're going to read a, um, if you're going to read The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, are we going to, um, we're going to open it about three quarters of the way through and just plop it open and start reading? Uh, probably not. We might. Um, but if you do, you're kind of weird. Um, but usually if we're going to read a story, we're going to start from uh, the beginning to get a, a good understanding of exactly what's going on. Um, and this is one of the ways that it's important to, uh, to read the Bible like any other book. Uh, we need to know what goes on in Genesis 1-1 before we, uh, before we really jump into what's going on in John 3-16, right? Um, if we don't understand how God created us, what He created us for, um, that He created everything perfectly and something terrible happened in Genesis chapter 3, uh, then we'll never really understand uh, why John 3.16 is as important as it is. Uh, so we have to understand the full scope of the biblical story from creation to fall uh, to pointing forward to the cross, uh, to the redemption that is ours in Jesus, and then uh, to the fulfillment of all things in the new heavens and new earth. This is a, a very brief summary of the biblical story through all 66 books, Genesis through Revelation. Um, so when we don't look at everything we read in the Bible through that lens, um, then we can run into some very serious errors. Um, there are many cults that exist as a result of not reading texts within their proper context. Now, if there's anything that you remember tonight, I want it to be this. Do not ever, ever, ever read single verses. Just don't do it. Why? Well, because we run into the errors of cults, we run into the errors of, as we mentioned last night, uh, Philippians 4.13. Um, what is the context of what's being said? We have to understand that. And single verses alone, apart from their context, are not all that helpful to us. And in fact, uh, many, many times can be used uh, to... Uh, to build false theologies. So I want to give us some examples of what that might look like. Uh, So John uh, chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So with this single verse, I want to give you an example of how we can go extremely wrong if we don't read this uh, in its context. So the writer states plainly that the Word was God. Now, in verse 3, he provides some backup for uh, this claim. Jump down to verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So, John says the same thing in two different ways uh, for emphasis, to add clarity. Everything that ever came into being owes its existence to um, the Word who caused it all to happen. Is the, the clear reading of this. 
if the Word caused all created things to come into existence, then He must have existed beforehand, right? If I'm going to create something, obviously I had to have been created first. Um, so, what we see in the text is that Jesus is the uncreated creator, right? We understand um, that the Bible teaches that Jesus was not created. He always has been and he always will be. That's how we understand Christ. Um, so as we read this, because we have the proper context to orient, who was Jesus? Was Jesus born? Was he created? No, he always has been. Then we can understand this text that the word refers to Jesus, and Jesus is the uncreated creator. Jesus is God, in other words. Um, but there are those who deny that Jesus is God, or they, they simply... Um, um, verse 1, does anyone know how the Jehovah's Witnesses translate this? Yes. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, is what they will say. Well, that one word makes a world of difference. <laughs> uh, was or a are two very different meanings. Um, so those who deny the deity of Jesus Christ, they will offer this rebuttal. They'll say, wait a minute, you didn't read uh, these verses carefully. We missed something. Notice the phrase, um, without him, in verse 3. All things were made through him and without him, or apart from him, was not anything made that was made. Um, so, what they would say is the writer here is excluding Jesus from the count. Uh, in other words, if you said, if I were to say apart from Alan, um, the family's going to Disneyland, what do I mean by that? Okay, good. But does that, when I say that, I'm implying that Alan's not going, but does that mean Alan's not part of the family? No, it simply means that he's part of the family, that's fine, but he's just not going with us. Um, so everyone is going to Disneyland with the exception of Alan. Sorry, you've got to stay home. Um, so they would say, in the same way, Every created thing was created by Jesus with the exception of Jesus himself. And so, where did Jesus come from? Well, their logical conclusion is that Jehovah God created him first, and then Jesus created everything else. Therefore, Jesus is not God because he had to be created. So, they want to look at this one part here that says, without him was not anything made that was made, and imply from that the same sort of scenario we just looked at. So, all of this is based on their seeming ability to replace without him or apart from him with the phrase, with the exception of Jesus, right? That's what that would mean? Well, to... In their mind, allegedly, that these are synonymous meanings, without him or apart from him or uh, with the exception of Jesus. Um, so that would mean the verse would sound like this. All things were made through him, and with the exception of Jesus, there was not anything made that was made. Well, does that make sense? Why doesn't that even make sense? Why does it not make sense to read it that way? Again, all things were made through him, and with the exception of Jesus was not anything made that was made. What's that? What do you mean by that? Okay. So, that would imply what about him? That he had to do it, right? He did it, therefore he had to 
be there. Therefore, we can't take exception with him being the one who is actually a part of it. We can't leave Jesus at home when we go to create. He's going to Disneyland. <laughs> um, he's a part of this deal. We can't divorce him from the whole thing. So that reconstructed phrase is nonsense. Um, what it would mean, in essence, is that Jesus is the only created thing that exists. Because we're saying, with the exception of Jesus, uh, nothing was made that was made. Well, if he's the creator, then he's the only thing and nothing else got made. That's a little confusing, and that's why it gains so much traction amongst people who are not reading the Scriptures properly. We're not taking the time to understand what the text really says. Um, so the phrase, without, uh, uh, without him or apart from Jesus, can't mean with the exception of Jesus. Um, it means something entirely different. It means apart from his agency or without his, uh, his working. In other words, apart from me, nobody's going to Disneyland because I'm the one with the car to fit all of us. Um, so our paraphrase would be, apart from Jesus' agency, he has the means. Apart from that, nothing came into being that is. Nothing exists that is apart from the work of Jesus. That's what the the phrase means. That's what the scriptures are pointing to. And this makes perfect sense within the context of the entire uh, chapter. Yes. That's okay. Yeah, well, well, if we don't even need to look elsewhere, if we read in context of John chapter 1 through verse 18, we will see very clearly that the Scriptures are pointing to Jesus is the Word, and the Word created all things, God created through Him all things, all things have their existence by His Word. Um, therefore, the only conclusion that can be made is Jesus is God. The first 18 verses of John chapter 1 make that abundantly clear. But the problem is that they're wanting to take verse 3 and just focus on that. We're not going to read verse 1. We're not going to read verse 2. We're not going to read verses 4 through 18. We're just going to read verse 3. Well, I can make verse 3 mean all sorts of different things if I don't read it within the context of the rest of the passage. And then, of course, as you said, let's expand that out to what the rest of the Bible says. It doesn't stand up. It doesn't make any sense with everything else. Yes? Right. Right. Sure. We just isolate texts and read them alone, and it's, it's going to be the case. So let's, uh, let's try another one. Go to Colossians chapter 3. If you ever spend any time in the Southern Baptist world, this might ring clear to you. Colossians 3.15, it's a verse that is commonly misunderstood by well-meaning Christians. Someone read that for us, Colossians 3.15. Okay, thank you. Um, so some have accurately pointed out that, um, that the Greek word for rule means to act as an arbiter or a judge. Uh, so they see this 
verse, and they isolate this verse and utilize it as a tool for knowing God's will for our lives. Now, I've taught on that a while back. How do we know God's will for our lives? Um, Well, some want to turn to this verse, and um, their thinking goes somewhat like this. When confronted with a decision that I need to make, then I need to go ahead and pray about it. Is there anything wrong with that? No, we, we need to pray about our decisions. Um, so uh, maybe someone can finish this for me without saying it. What, uh, using this verse wrongly, what do they say then? What are we waiting for after we pray? You know, Heather? Peace. We're waiting for peace in our heart, right? That I am, I'm waiting until I just have a peace about it. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. I was sharing with someone today that uh, when Felicia and I first got married and we were going to buy our first house, uh, the counsel that we got was that, and these are very well-meaning Christian people, um, that we needed to go park our car in front of the house we were looking to buy, and uh, we needed to pray together, and we needed to sit there quietly and wait and see if we had a peace about it. Well, I assure you, when you're about to spend $100,000 plus, you're never going to feel a peace about it, ever. <laughs> I know I don't. Um, that doesn't seem to be the way that the Bible talks about us making decisions. But this peace, this subjective peace that we feel after we pray is supposed to be the go-ahead that we get from God. If we don't feel peace, we don't proceed. Uh, This internal sense of peace acts like the judge that helps us to determine uh, whether or not the decision we're about to make is, in fact, the will of God. Um, So we can paraphrase it uh, in their understanding as, let the feelings of peacefulness in your heart be the judge about God's individual will for your life. Is that what Paul means in this verse? Um, Well, let's, let's break it down a little bit and try and get a better understanding Uh, Let's read from verse 12 through the end of that section, through 17. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are walking in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, with a little context, what is he saying in verse 15? Does this have anything to do with determining the will of God when we pray? Okay, good. Uh, It's about putting on certain things. (laughs) Love, patience, peace, kindness, faithfulness, all of these Uh, wonderful attributes of a Christian, and part of that is that we have, uh, that we are a a peaceful people, that we experience the peace of Christ when we are walking in obedience to Him, that our lives are marked by uh, by a peace, that we're not, uh, when confronted with trials and temptations in our lives, we're not frazzled like people who are in the world, but rather we experience the peace of Christ that dwells within us. This has nothing to do with uh, feeling a certain kind of peace when we pray and that being our way of figuring out what God's will is. Um, It's completely foreign to the context of this verse to assume that. Um, I one time had uh, was working on a a church uh, directory with um, another person and uh, he wanted a scripture verse to put at the front of the, uh, the directory that had something to do with family. I don't remember what passage it was, but he, uh, he read it to me, 
And uh, he said, this will be perfect in there. I said, well, that's fine, but, um, well, it's not really fine because it's completely out of context. If you read that in the context of the rest of the passage, it doesn't mean at all what you want it to mean. And he said, well, that's all right. Nobody's going to look it up. (laughs) Okay. Whatever. (laughs) So, yeah, well, yeah, unfortunately that is probably true. Um, We have to remember as we read and as we seek to apply the Scriptures that context is king. You're not going to read any other book hopefully, and as you're reading it, you're going to take one sentence out and try to make it sound as though it means something completely different than what was intended by the writer. We don't do that with other things that we read. Why in the world would we do that with the Bible, the most important of all that we'll read? If I write to you a letter and you extract from that letter one sentence and you twist it and contort it and seek to apply it in a way that doesn't mean anything close to what I want, Um, we're going to have problems. Um, So, context is king. Um, We have to uh, work through the confusion that maybe we experience as we read by reading things uh, uh, in in the whole, not just in simple parts. Any, uh, Any thoughts or questions about that? We could spend a long time looking at various examples of context. Just, uh, just some, some uh, quick points, things to look for as you're reading in the Scriptures. Um, if you see the words but or therefore, uh, what is being implied about the overall context? When I read but, therefore, or so, what is that saying about what came before and what came after? That word itself. Okay, so the, the so is saying... Um, as a result of all that I've just explained, so or therefore or, uh, yeah, so or therefore, um, this is the result. Because of this, then this. So if you see therefore, you better have a good understanding of what came beforehand. Uh, a good, um, I think, a good example of that would be... Um, Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's, that's basic rules of grammar, right? Look at Romans 12. Right. <laughs> little Bible school cliche there. <laughs> Paul does this in all of his letters, every one of them. There comes a place of transition in his writing. And it's always the same divisions. In Romans chapter 12, in verse 1, he writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What Paul's doing right now is he's transitioning from one, uh, one type of thinking and writing to another. Chapters 1 through 11 of the book of Romans are straight theology, doctrine. Here's, uh, he, he writes about man's condition. Who is man? Uh, his sinful condition, his heart. He writes about what God has done about that. He writes about uh, justification, and then he goes on to sanctification, and he writes about the role of the law in the believer's life. He goes on to write about God's, God's people being cut off from him and restored. And in the, all, in the end of all of this, he gets to a place where he is so excited about all that he has presented about God. In verse three, 33 of chapter 11 is this great doxology. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. And he goes on through the end of the chapter, for from him and through him and 
and to him are all things. Glory be to him forever. Amen. And then he goes in. As a result of all of these theological teachings that I've given you, now, therefore, I appeal to you, brothers, do something. And then he goes from chapter 12 through the end of the book of Romans to chapter 16. And what we have is all, how do I apply this to my life? What does all of this theology mean in relationship to me walking in the Christian life? And we see it. Uh, um, do not be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. If you, if you look over a little bit, um, look at verse, uh, verse 9 of chapter 12. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. All of a sudden, we have all of these commands that have first been established by what he has laid as a foundational theological basis. So as a result of all that we now know about man and God, now we can establish what it is that is being commanded. So that simple word, therefore, marks a tremendous transition now of thought and idea. And you will see that in every one of Paul's letters. It's always theology first, application second. And there's a transition that's marked by therefore or so, as a result of this, now this. Um, so that's a good thing to look for in your, uh, in your reading. Any more questions about or thoughts about rule number one, the Bible to be read like any other book? All right, number two. Read the Bible existentially. Now, that could be a dangerous thing to say if you know anything about the false teaching of existentialism. Um, so I, I'll, I will explain that in just a second, and so we can uh, define the difference between the two. Um, existentialism is, the, uh, is understanding things in terms of the outer kind of physical, tangible um, it's really existentialism was a worldview or an idea that was developed um, kind of on the heels of the worldview of naturalism, which was um, scientific method, uh, the, uh, the ideas of evolution, and, um, and that every, everything that exists is all that can be studied and understood. Nothing exists that's not tangible, basically. Um, if it can't be observed in some way and studied, then it doesn't matter and it doesn't exist. Well, existentialism kind of took that to where uh, it became people's worship of, uh, of the natural world and nature and everything else. Um, so when, when the existential ideas of, um, of this worldview are applied to interpreting Scripture, um, then Scripture is taken out of its historical context um, for some kind of subjective meaning, that it means what I want it to mean, basically, which is what a lot of people do with the Bible. I'm sure all of us at some point have probably been in some sort of Bible study where whoever's leading it, well-meaning, of course, would say, what does the scripture, what is this scripture that we've read, what does it mean to you? Well, it doesn't really matter what it means to you. It matters what it means, we're looking for the meaning, not what it means to you. It can mean all sorts of things to us, but if it's not what the writer intends for it to mean, it doesn't matter. We're not looking for what it means to me. We're looking for what it means, period. Uh, so that was kind of, uh, that's, that's the development um, of how um, kind of these existential ideas were applied to the Scripture. Everything had to have some tie to how it relates to uh, to me. So um, it took the Bible out of its historical context and placed it in the here and now. Um, so what happened historically is really of no importance whatsoever to the point of some saying, well, even whether or not Jesus was actually a real person doesn't matter at all. It's just that, you know, through these stories about Jesus, whether he lived or didn't live, um, we have things that can be applied to our lives here and now. That's the idea of existentialism. This is what's important, the here and now, nothing else really matters. Um, the problem with that approach is it does really matter whether or not Jesus lived, died, and was resurrected. 
Remember in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says, if all this is false, if none of this is, is true, then we above all men are to be pitied. We're, we're foolish and we've wasted our lives and our faith is absolutely worthless. Like I said last week, if, uh, if we find something in the Bible, if, if, if there's a discovery made that uh, something historically is wrong in the Bible, then we might as well hang it up and go home because now we have nothing to place our hope in. The historical historicity, the historical accuracy of the Scriptures is vitally important, and the burden of proof is on us to say it is true. Um, so uh, the good news without Jesus um, is not good news at all. He's, he is the one we're banking all of our hope on, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Um, so, um, so when we say we need to write, read the Bible existentially, we're not talking about this sort of um, uh, application of this type of worldview. That's not at all what we mean. What we mean is that as we read the Bible, we need to get passionately and personally involved in what's going on in what we're reading. And not just for personal application, but for um, understanding what the writer is intending by what is being written. Um, So, in essence, we want to crawl into the skin and walk in the shoes of the writer to have a better grasp of what uh, we're reading about. So, I want to... I want to give us uh, an example of that because much of, uh, much of what we see in the Bible takes some pretty dramatic things and really summarizes them in a few short verses. And if we don't take the time to walk slowly through there and figure out what really is going on here, we're going to miss a whole lot. And I want to give you a good example of that. Go to Leviticus chapter 10. There's going to be, we're going to read about a very uh, uh, serious event, something that happened uh, here that is, um, is pretty shocking maybe to us at first read. Um, it would have been shocking to those who observed it. It would have been shocking to the family involved in it. Uh, but it gets a three-verse mention and then it moves on. Um, so if we're not to walk in the shoes, crawl into the skin and walk uh, through this and figure out what 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 would that really have been like? Then we're going to miss a whole lot here. So Leviticus 10, uh, someone read for us verses uh, 1 through 3. Ben, you have it over there? Can you read it for us? Yes. Thank you. Uh, what's going on here? What just happened in three verses? The 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 two men are named Nadab and Abihu. What did they What did they do? Okay, so they went to the altar in the temple, and they offered what's called either unauthorized or strange fire. Um, and so what, did, what happened to them? Yeah, God struck them dead, right? They, they died right there. Um, we, don't, we don't have any indication of exactly... Um, w- what was going on other than they were sacrificing something or they were doing it in a way that God had not authorized. Um, there are all sorts of suggestions that uh, maybe it was that their, their heart just wasn't in it. Or maybe they did it, uh, maybe they were drunk. Or maybe they were doing it um, simply out of ritual and, uh, and they weren't doing it out of true devotion. 
The fact of the matter is, we don't know. All we know is that God has authorized worship to be done in a certain way, and they didn't do it that way. And by the way, these three verses is where we strongly draw from to present what we call the regulative principle of worship, that God has commanded how to be worshipped in the scriptures, and that's all we need to do in our worship. Um, But let's think about this a little bit. In three short verses, this drama of sin and the execution of Aaron's sons are very briefly recorded. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but if I had two sons just struck dead by God who were doing something out of worship, I probably, uh, you know, I would want a little, a few more than three verses about it that in the end simply says, oh, and their dad, he held his peace. Uh, Moses said, that's how it is. God commanded something. They didn't obey it. Um, so um, suck it up and drive on. And so Aaron held his peace. That's all we got. <laughs> um, so Yeah, right. Let's let's keep it. Let's let's keep it uh, narrow here. Yeah. Let's let's not let's not divulge so much information. Um uh, there's a lot of questions to ask of the text, right? It leaves a lot of things hanging. Uh what was Aaron thinking when he saw his sons drop dead right there in front of him? Um can we read between the lines a little bit or um if he was anything like me, wouldn't he first say, you know, come on, Lord, I'm, I'm doing everything that you've asked me to do. My family is seeking to be faithful to do what you've commanded of us. I'm sacrificing my life and my time. I'm giving myself to your people. And in the end, uh, you've just wiped out my sons for whatever they've done. Maybe it was a childish prank. Maybe it was out of an insincere heart. But in the end, was it really bad enough to just drop them dead in my presence? Um, that might be my reaction at first. Sure. Sure, and drop dead, right. Right. Sure, I can't change what you've already done. Sure. Sure. But you did it anyway. Exactly. Well, those are the those are the questions as we come to the scripture. I want to think through those things a little bit. I don't want to just read these 3 verses and say, "Man, that was harsh." And then go on to verse 4 and start reading some more. I want to stop and think about what did they do? Is there any indication of what exactly was going on? Why? Why was it so significant? What are, the, what are the overall implications of what is being said here? It really does matter how we worship God. If God doesn't command us to do something, then we probably shouldn't do it. And if there's something He says don't do, then we certainly shouldn't do it. Um, these are things that as we come to the text, we're going to learn if we begin to think a little bit more in terms of what is going on historically. As I'm walking in the shoes of Aaron, what are the questions I'm going to be asking of God? As I am observing this situation, if I'm just a bystander and I see Nadab and Abihu go into the temple and they don't come out, uh, someone drags them out, um, what are some of the things I'm going to want to know? Um, so, this is what we mean by reading the text existentially. And this is where we get the method of interpretation that we call the grammatical historical method of interpretation. Grammatical historical method of interpretation. So, grammatical, we should all know that, right? That we're, we are looking at the grammar of the text, we're looking at um, how sentences are formed. We're looking at words, at commas and periods and all of these sorts of things, and those do matter. One of, the, uh, one of the major errors in the King James Bible is a misplaced comma. changes the meaning of an entire sentence. Um, so those things matter. We want a grammatical look at the text. How is this set up? How is this arranged? How are the words being used? 
For example, when we looked at uh, John 1.1, it makes a huge difference whether or not the text says um, he was God or he was a God. That makes a humongous difference. Um, So, that's the grammatical interpretation. But we also need to look at the historical. That's why always you'll, you'll, um, you'll hear me in preaching. I want to bring out the historical context of what's going on. For example, as we walk through the book of 1 Corinthians, it's very important to know what's going on in Corinth at the time. It's very important to know the culture that they exist in. And as a result of existing in that culture, Paul is writing to them to address specific problems that have infiltrated the church. It's very, very important that we look at things uh, historically. Um, We're going to have a very hard time taking these three verses of Leviticus and understanding them in our culture without tying them to the historicity of what's going on, right? I, I I I have nothing at all to uh, compare to them sacrificing an animal at the altar and dropping dead because God was uh, ruling over them in a theocratic manner, that God was the king and the judge and the ruler over those things, and his, uh, the death penalty wasn't enacted by a civil government. It was enacted by God right then and there. Um, I, I don't have a context for that outside of understanding the historical things that were going on. But this brings us back into rule number one. Uh, do, do, we read, uh, do we read a book from uh, about World War II without trying to have a good understanding of what was going on in the world at that time? Um, am I going to read a historical book, any kind of historical work, without having to try and have some sort of understanding of what is going on in that context of time? So historical context is just as important to us as grammatical context as we read uh, sentences, as we read words and try and fit them all together. These things are very important. So as we try to put ourselves in the life situation of those we're reading about in the scriptures, we can come to a better understanding of what we're actually reading. So in, in one sense, this is us um, having empathy. We're, we are we are trying to feel the emotions of the characters we're studying. We're trying to see what maybe they were going through. Um, I, I can't imagine what it's like to be an Aaron. You are a leader of a obstinate, stubborn people who don't want to do anything that God is commanding them to do, even though he's shown time and time and time again that he is faithful and that he loves them and will get them to where he says he is going to get them. And in the end, your sons offering worship to him are struck dead. And, in, and, and you get Moses saying, hey, Aaron, forget about it. It's over. Let's move on. And he has to say, okay, <laughs> let's go. Um, I want to stop and think about that a little bit. I want to feel maybe what the pain of that is, that I can have a better understanding of the text. Um, So that sort of reading between the lines is obviously not um, a part of the inspired text, but it's going to help us to get a flavor of understanding as uh, as we are reading along. It's going to help us in the end with our application. Um, When I think about it in those terms... It really heightens for me the seriousness of what is going on here. When, when I read briefly through this and say, oh, some guys did something God told them not to do and they died for it, that sounds good. Um, well, he would have been, maybe not saw them struck down, but he certainly saw them immediately after they had died. Um, so he would have been on the scene at least, you know, when it, after it happened. Um, there's a, I hesitate to even mention him, I hope you don't spend much time reading anything by him, but Soren Kierkegaard was a, uh, a philosopher, uh, he wrote some good stuff, most of it wasn't, um, but he did write something called Fear and Trembling, and in that he speculates on the narrative of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. This is one of the perfect examples of existential reading. What is it like 
to be Abraham, commanded by God to take your only son, who you've waited for years and years for, and now I've got to bring him up to a mountain and lay him on an altar and kill him. Um, So Kierkegaard asks a bunch of questions of this text. He asks himself, why did Abraham get up early in the morning to sacrifice his son? And so he reads the text. He tries to get some answers from all of it. When he finish, uh, when when you finish reading what he has written about all of this, all these questions he's asked, you really get this uh, this sense that you have visualized, you have seen what it was like to be at Mount Moriah with Abraham, because these questions of what is it like? What is it like to be told by God to rise early, to, uh, to get some wood bundled together and put on the back of your son that we can go and offer him as a set? What is that like? I don't, I don't know if you've ever thought through those things as you've read that text. Um, now, again, it doesn't add any s- special authority to the Scripture that's not already there, but it helps us to walk in the shoes a little bit of these people to understand what we're reading a little bit more. Um, And all of this is motivated for Kierkegaard by him simply asking the question, why did Abraham do what he did? Why? Because God commanded him, right? And so that, that begs a lot more questions for us, right? Am I as quick to simply go into something that God has commanded, even though it's not something I particularly want to do? Um, There's a lot of questions of application that are drawn out of asking those types of questions very simply. And as we start to um, seek to walk in this with the biblical characters, we're going to have a much greater um, depth of understanding. Why? So, questions we need to, to ask as we're reading. Uh, why does God do this? Why, why is God doing this right here and right now with these people in this place? Uh, that's a good existential type question to ask. Or, why does the Bible say it this way? Why did the writer write it in this particular way? You're going to come to some verses that seem it, it seems a little confusing in the way that it's written. So we want to ask that question. Why does it say it in this particular way? Um, I want to ask specifically of uh, those who are being written about. Um, what was it like? What was it like for Peter to take a couple steps on top of the water? What was it like for him to walk on water? Uh, what was it like uh, to see Christ ascend into heaven? What was it like to see Jesus after he was resurrected from the dead? I want to ask those questions and start to kind of get a, a feel for that. And this is, these are stuff, as I, uh, these are questions I'm asking as I'm preparing to preach all the time. I want to ask these of the text. What was it like? What was it like for the Israelites to stand at the base um, of the mountain as they, uh, as they look up at Sinai and they see the clouds covering and the lightning flashing and God is there delivering the law to Moses. What was that like? I want to know that. And as I'm asking that question, I'm getting a heightened understanding of the seriousness of this, how important it is to where the people actually say, Moses, we don't want to hear God's voice. You go hear from him and come report back to us. Well, what's that all about? Why? Why are, they asking the, why are they asking of that? So those are the questions. We need to ask a lot of questions of the Bible and not be scared to do so. I think sometimes we're scared because we look at the text and say, it's God's inspired word, it is as it is, and therefore we just need to understand it in that way. We should be asking questions. I, I think God intends for that to, to happen. Um, so we need, to, uh, we need to question the writers of the text. We need to question uh, what God is doing and why. And that's going to get us to a place where we can start to work toward application. We're out of time. So any, uh, any comments or questions um, on any of that tonight?
Sure. Sure, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Sure. Yeah, what's it what is it like to live in the belly of a well for 3 days? Or what do you think it was to be on Noah's ark for 40 days? Uh amongst two of every every creature. And does that really mean these are questions I want to ask. Does that really mean every creature? Were there two gnats and two mosquitoes and two caterpillars and or, or is this just a figure of speech that was used to refer to a lot of different animals? Or, you know, so these are questions we have to ask of the text as we read along. And remember, um, part of the grammatical method of interpretation is looking back to what is the genre? Is this poetry? So I want to ask those questions. If this is poetry, then should I read that the trees are singing and really think that the trees grew mouths and started singing songs? Well, no, it's poetry. It's saying something about when the wind blows through the leaves, it's making a certain sound. Um, so those are the kinds of questions. We, we need to ask questions of the text. And a lot of them, if we can simply feel ourselves and sense in some way that we're a part of that story, um, it's going to make a huge difference. Any other thoughts? All right, good deal. Uh, I'll pray, and before we go... Make sure if you borrowed a pen, please return it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for tonight. We're grateful for the time that we've had to uh, to look at your word and to have a better understanding of um, of how to read it properly. We pray, Lord, that you uh, you would help all of us to approach our Bibles each week with a little uh, new added knowledge uh, to how we can go about reading it and that we would do these very things, that we would slow down and ask more questions and seek to have a better understanding of what you are telling us from the text. And as we ask those questions, I pray, Lord, that through the Holy Spirit you would illumine the truth for us that we might apply it to our lives, we might apply it to our worship and to our gathering as a uh, body of believers, that all these things would come together, Lord, to, um, to honor you, to glorify you, and to, uh, to help us to walk in obedience uh, to all that you have commanded. Lord, thank you for the scriptures. Uh, thank you for the wisdom of those who, um, who have uh, for, um, for all the years since it's been written uh, interpreted the scriptures and have given us the, the tools and the understanding of how to go about doing that for ourselves. We're thankful for the word in our language that we can read it and understand it and ask questions of it. And we pray, Lord, that you help us to never take that for granted, that we would turn to your word above all else and, uh, and seek to know more of it because in the word is the truth about you that we might know more about and trust more of you. We love you and we thank you and pray, Lord, that you would bless us in our study of the scriptures this week for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.